Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you. Guys, podcast. I'm on, and I'm Michael. How's everybody doing? You ready for a crazy case, dude? I am. This thing is. This thing is insane. Happened in the this is unlike any 80s. other case we've done. It's different. It's, it it is. Never done a case like this. It is, and we don't dabble in a lot of unsolved cases on here. But yeah. this one was just great, and I'm I'm excited about the conversation about this because there's it, it's so strange that it, it's got it's got to be a one of a couple things, right? And I think yeah. we've kind of somewhat narrowed it down. I think if you guys studied this case, uh, you kind of know what we're talking about. But it's going to be a lot of interesting discussion in this one for sure. But it's one of those ones where the more you study, you think you think you know, you're like, okay, I got it figured out. Mm-hmm. I, I know I know what happened. And then you read a little bit more, and you're like, no, maybe I don't. I you, you, the more you read, almost the more perplexed you are. Right. Yeah. It's it's pretty wild. There's a lot of mystery to it, no doubt, no doubt. Well, you ready to get into it? Yeah, we don't want to give away too much with this one. Let's let's let uh, let's go on the journey here. So let's hear your intro and get into it. All right. They don't believe a word I say 
stalking me. Hey, call the police. Please listen to me. Losing my sanity. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Talking me, hey, call the police. Please listen to me. Losing my sanity. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Oh, we got no fucking idea. case this week as you mentioned heads up i know some people like to be warned whether a case is solved or unsolved this is technically unsolved this case is it's perplexing Mm -hmm. Uh, a woman dies she had been being tormented for seven years prior and you know upwards of a hundred calls to police and reports of this person being um, harassed being assaulted um, and finally she perishes in a a suspicious manner and there's a lot of questions surrounding her mental health. Was she doing a lot of this, or was there actually a person or persons tormenting her? Right. Was it possibly an ex-husband, someone she worked with, who you know who had been doing this? But right, and who would have the expertise to do this for so long and not get caught? Not even a not even a glimpse, not even a suspect. Right. Yeah, that's what's so strange. There was a about few times case. where her husband was, you know seen lurking around her home mm-hmm. by police and his his whole uh story was that he was there to protect her from the people that have been tormenting her oh, uh, okay which, like reminds you of like the movie scream you know it's like yes, the, the boyfriend was acting as though he was there to protect her and meanwhile he was the guy that was doing it oh shit yeah and it forgot about that yeah, yeah i mean and he has motive and this didn't happen until right after she gets divorced is when it starts but yep. then again that is someone who would who would be preyed on some, uh, you know, a middle-aged woman, a pretty woman who's living alone, uh, mm-hmm. recently divorced, you know, I mean, it, it does make sense that someone would target her, but why it's just the timing, right? The timing yeah. is so weird. That's what makes you kind of lean towards the husband. It's like, really? Right after you divorced, this stuff started happening. And, and the Strange. convenience of every time she was attacked, she was alone, even though she had people around her a lot. And yeah. at a certain point, when it had gotten so out of hand, the police started to survey her her home, to watch over her home. And every time they were there, like watching over for, like let's say there was like a two-week span where they were 24-hour surveillance over her, nothing would happen in that two-week span. But then again, uh, I mean, are they sitting on the street corner with cop cars? Because that's the way I gathered it. And if that's the case, yeah. who's going to show up, though? Right. You know, who's going to show up? That's, when you... that's the thing about this case. It's like every time you present something, you're like, well, look at this. You're like, well, well what about, about that? This? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know damn case. well I'm going to be here to do that shit. 
<laughs> right. Exactly. That's your job, man. That's my job. So the case we're doing this week is a woman named Cindy James, um, who we're going to start with her death. We've already alluded to the fact that she died under right. sus- suspicious circumstances. We'll start with how she was discovered, um, and then we'll work our way back from there. Um, so on June 8th, 1989, the quiet Vancouver, British Columbia sub- suburb of Richmond was shocked when a body was found lying in the yard of an abandoned house. The victim would be 44-year-old pediatric mental health nurse Cindy James, a very well-respected woman in her community, Yes, um, had been working with children, um, helping them with mental health issues. Uh, that was her passion. And like I said, very well-respected, had been doing that for a very long time, like 15 plus years she'd been doing that job and right. uh, was, was loved by her community. Um, a road maintenance worker found her body near an abandoned house on Blundell Road, roughly one mile from where her car was parked. She'd been missing for two weeks by the time her body was found. Um, mm. She was lying on her side on the ground, fully clothed with hands and feet behind her back. There was a needle mark in one arm, and an autopsy revealed that she had died from an overdose of morphine and other drugs. However, you know she had that prick mark from a needle, uh, which would become a common theme through this case, you'll see. But... Um, that no needle was found at the scene, which led a lot of people to believe that she couldn't have done this herself. Right. Because where would the, if, if she had done it herself, the needle would be nearby. They would Hold be on. found somewhere between her and the car that she had walked away from. Right. So there were marks on her arm from the needle. Yes. Okay. Because in the things that I read, the articles I read, and I also watched an Unsolved Documentaries uh, st- series on this, or yeah. an episode on this, rather. It's from 91, so it's it's pretty old. But it is more current to when this but case happened. that was happened. fresh. That was very fresh to the time right. that she had been found. So. But here's the thing, right? So they mention the morphine and all that stuff and being drugged, but they never mention whether or not there were any evidence on her arms that she was ever actually stabbed. You know, because that's that's the whole thing, right? If she was absolutely injected, then where's the needle? And now they say but it takes another thing that's minutes. weird too, though, is that she had she had uh, the autopsy revealed that she had ingested the pills that the drugs that she was under were not from the injection. They she had eaten she had consumed the pills, so they were in her stomach. Okay, so she consumed morphine pills. Yes, correct. But there along was still, with other drugs. But there was still a puncture mark in her arm. Yes, but like I said, that was a common theme. She would be found many times uh, near death with a nylon stocking around her neck with a needle mark in her arm. Mm-hmm. This would be something that would occur over and over prior in the prior seven years before she was found dead. Right. And she was <clears throat> never sexually assaulted, right? There was an occurrence where she had said that she had a vague memory of being assaulted with a knife that had been inserted in her. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if there was actual evidence of that or if that was just her recollection after being drugged. Okay. Um, she had these blurry memories of uh, being attacked over and over again, and you know she would she would just get little details of being in a van or, you know, a person standing over her. Right. Quotes that they had said. Right. We'll get through all that, but as as for her being found on June eighth, nineteen eighty nine, um, a black nylon stocking was tied around her neck. Once again, another common theme to her prior attacks. Yet the autopsy revealed that she had died from the overdose from the morphine and the other drugs. Police would con- uh, conclude initially that she had committed suicide, which is crazy to think because she was found basically hogtied with her hands and feet behind her back. Right. So to think that she had done this to herself is pretty shocking revelation to a community to say, you know, this woman's found in an abandoned yard uh, with her hands and feet tied behind her and a needle mark in her, and yet she committed suicide is what the police are saying. But the police had a lot more info into Cindy James, and they had been dealing with her for a very long time. So right. they were skeptical, to say the least. Um, 
no doubt. Whether it was right or wrong. And she would have time. Uh, They concluded in an investigation that after taking these pills, she would have roughly 15 minutes before she's out. And to tie herself up, that's kind of a lot of time. And And a policeman actually recreated um, the... the scenario of tying yourself up the way she did and mm-hmm. was able to do it within three minutes. So there you go. Uh, and it's also important to note that her hands and her feet tied together, they were in a very loose fashion. Like she could have slipped, uh, apparently she could have slipped right out of them if she was so inclined. Right. Well, it, then again, though, if someone drugged you and then tied you and you're unconscious, they wouldn't be worrying about tying them very tight either. Yeah. To That's, be fair. Once again, there's always, you can always, there's always another side to the argument on this case, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's always like a yeah, but in this case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes it so yeah. interesting. We'll call this yeah, but. This whole damn yeah. case is. Right. <laughs> yep. Uh, so the coroner would, uh, would rule that her death was not suicide, an accident, or a murder. They determined that she died of an unknown event. Mm-hmm. So I there's actually, there was like a hearing uh, of jurors that were experts in these, uh, to, to determine her death. What, what was the fashion of it? Was it a murder or whatever? And they, they basically settled on unknown because there was like one juror member that was not convinced that uh, she, had been, she had killed herself. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was just enough to like tip the scale and the, let's, let's just list this as unknown. Okay, but what was the actual cause? Was it the drugs? Or asphyxiation. Yes, the drugs were the cause of her death, but okay. they were unable to conclude whether you know she had been forced to take these drugs. Right, right. Okay, okay. Just wanted to clarify. Yeah. So Cindy's parents, of course, never doubted that their their daughter had been murdered. Um, Otto, her father, believed that the police did not investigate the possibility of a homicide or somebody murdering her. Instead, they zeroed in on trying to prove that she had committed suicide. They believed someone in Vancouver was getting away with murder. The police, who'd never dusted for prints or thoroughly searched for evidence in her home after the incidents, the many incidents that she had reported in the past, um, they said that James had made it all up, uh, mm. that being Cindy. Cindy. Um, so over the seven years before her death, Cindy had filed over 90 complaints with the police. Uh, she claimed she had been targeted, harassed, and assaulted by a man and possibly others. All of these we were going to go through throughout this case. Um, However, after her death, one doctor theorized that she had multiple personalities and one of Cindy's split personalities murdered the other. Yikes. There's no doubt that near the end of her life, she was, she was struggling with some well, severe mental issues. But, <laughs> yeah, for real. So, much to, prove, so what, much to point in that. Regardless if that was brought on uh, by her and her life circumstances, the way her life was going, right. or if it was brought on by someone actually harassing her at first. You know, we t- we discussed this before we started recording. It's so, um, mm. We we made that mistake of started talking about the case before we, <laughs> we actually hit record. <laughs> Rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. Right. right? Yep. But we were discussing how she seemed to be a very well put together individual for s- most of her life. She was a well respected nurse working in a hospital. Uh, was in a long marriage with a person and like no signs of any issues. And then all of a sudden. It, it, it leads you to believe that someone was harassing her and drove her crazy, if you will. Yeah, it does. And it's it's funny how her husband, like, once they divorce, is just not in the picture anymore. It's like no mention of him, really, hardly, um, other than what he was around her house maybe once or twice. I, I don't even know they'd his been, name. They'd been still kind of going on dates and stuff for a while afterwards oh, until okay. these events got more serious. And then she started to blame him, saying that he was the one that was harassing her, and then they're they're relationship was forever severed at that point but they, after their divorce they were pretty amicable and they were 
Um, still going out on dinner dates every now and then. We'll talk about all that. But so why would let's she start with uh, Cindy's Cindy's birth? Sorry, oh, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna say, why would she blame him for that for no reason? You know, that seems odd. Maybe she thought he was trying to play a game where she would want him back with her for protection. Maybe she felt maybe he was trying to scare her into not living alone anymore. And then maybe the easiest thing to do would be to come back to him. You know what I mean? Like, what is his motive here? And if she started well, accusing him first, she had her reasons. She believed that he, you know, she had witnessed something on the boat. He had a boat that he, a catamaran that he would go sailing with. Uh huh. Um, we'll talk about something she had witnessed. So, you know, basically her theory, she started having these recollections of things that she had kind of blocked out of her psyche. And when she was getting uh, psychic treatment, um, she was she was getting these memories coming back to her of yeah. violent things that he had done to her in the past that she had oh. witnessed him do to other people in the past and. That's why she started to begin it, uh, to believe that it was him that had done this. Mm, maybe she forgot about some of these things because she was drugged. Yes, that's her theory as well. Interesting. Ooh, all we'll right. get into all that. Well, let's start with uh, Cindy as a baby. She was born in Oliver, Canada in 1944. She was the oldest of six kids, and she, her father was in the Air Force and was a stern disciplinary within the household. Um, and a bit old school, her being born in the 40s, uh, her, her father was... It treated her daughter differently than his sons. Right. Um, she was not allowed to go to college, um, although his sons were encouraged to go to college, and her father ultimately allowed her to go to nursing school, and that's why she went into that career path. But at the age of six, she began to experience nightmares, which would continue into adulthood, often causing her to wake screaming. She had some trauma that had occurred to her, I mean, uh, when she was young, and I think that has a lot to do with this case as well. Her brother apparently molested her when she was younger. I don't know how off, how frequently, mm-hmm. but I think that may have something to do with these nightmares that she began experiencing at a young age as well. Some bad stuff seems to have happened to Cindy when she was young. Right. She yeah. feared dark places, especially basements when she was younger, which isn't out of the norm, but it's kind of weird, the treatment that she was given. Um, she was forced to eat in the dark basement oftentimes uh, in her own home because apparently there was a lack of space at the dinner table for her. So they would send her to the dark basement to eat alone, which is what? just like, that's <laughs> That crazy. seems absurd. That seems absurd. Right? Like, why wouldn't you just Absolutely let her eat absurd. in the living room? Like, there's got to be a better place she could eat if the dinner table's full. Can't she go in the living room and eat or like go out, you know, sit on the front porch and eat? Like, there's always room at the table, man. You can scoot over. You know what I'm saying? That, right. Especially for that's your what kids. I'm saying, dude. I don't we care. don't have the biggest table, but we, we, we cram in, you know? Oh, yeah. I got a family of five sitting around a table that probably most people wouldn't put four at. I mean, it's, right. it can happen. It can happen. Yeah. It's just no reason to. This seems like a punishment. You yeah. know, maybe she complained about her food and they were like, all right, well, you can go eat in the dark then. Yeah. You know, this just doesn't seem like, oh, we don't have space. Go go down to the basement. Like, y'all ain't got a, a living room or some shit. She could sit in, eat at the couch yeah. or something. It just, there's just more to this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That just seems odd. Yeah. And as I mentioned, she would uh, also later come out to her husband many years later uh, with an admission that she had been sexually assaulted by one of her brothers. And she was a very private person. Yeah. That's something about Cindy as well that everybody remarked at was that she would keep a lot of stuff to herself. Um, a lot of trauma, she would just try to get, you know, move past it and not deal with it. Right. Um, but it would come out in one way or another eventually. That type of trauma is always going to surface. And it's nice yeah. if you have somebody you can get that off your chest to. You know what I mean? If, yes. if, and if you had someone that experienced it with you, obviously that's not good for them. But it's, right. it's someone that you can work through it with. You know, maybe another sibling. But I think she just had brothers, right? She was, was she the only daughter? I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. Okay. I'm not but sure. Either There's way, not a ton about her childhood out there. 
Right. But either way, that's definitely something you would want to tell your significant other, someone you trust, someone that you're spending your life with, you know? Actually, I know for a fact she had at least one sister because she had a sister write a book about her later on oh, after well, her Oh, there death. you go. There yeah. you go. Geez, somebody... How, how did she feel about it? Did she believe her sister? I believe... I think she uh, she believed her sister was targeted and, and murdered. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Hmm. So, in 1963, Cindy met a resident doctor um, after she had gone through nursing school. Um, she was doing a residency, and she had met a, a resident doctor, and the two were getting serious when uh, another traumatic thing happened to Cindy, his life was cut short in a car accident. Right after she had oh. met this guy, they started to fall in love, and he dies in a car accident. Oh, um, no. And this really affects her, obviously. Two years later, she would meet Dr. Roy Makepeace while working together at Vancouver General Hospital in the fall of 1965. They formed a bond and would soon start dating, and uh, she was 18 years younger than him. She was Whoa. 19, and he was 37. He was married with two children Oh my! Um, when they met and started dating. And soon he would leave his wife in December of 1966. He would leave his wife and his two kids to marry Cindy. Um, she would be 22 when they would get married. So they were dating for several years by the time that they would get married. Wow. Yeah, I guess in secret for a little while maybe. Yeah, or, yeah that's what um, it looks like. Yeah, I'm sure he was keeping it under wraps for a while. Yeah, because they didn't... Uh... He didn't leave his wife till 1966, and they met right. in 65, so they at least dated for almost a year, probably. Yeah. Wow. So they had a great relationship early on. Um, in 1974, Cindy would land her dream job working with children as a, pe- uh, as a pediatric mental health nurse in British Columbia. Um, and this was everything she always wanted to do was work with young kids. Right. Um, she was described as gentle and kind, but firm when she needed to be. Meanwhile, her husband failed uh, at the exam. So when they moved to uh, they moved to British Columbia, he uh, had left being a psychiatric doctor. And uh, when they moved there, he tried to go into the same line of field, uh, except he kept failing the the uh, psychi- psychiatric medicine um, tests there uh, in British Columbia. He failed three times and oh, no. was barred from testing anymore. So he couldn't do what he had done before. This. Damn. This bothered him. Um, it left him depressed, irritable, and angry, and he went to work as the head of medical services for British Columbia's hydroelectric utility company uh, oh. just to there you go. You know, make a paycheck. That's probably good because, I mean, I wouldn't want a psychiatric doctor that passed the test on the third time anyway, you know? It's like, <laughs> bro, I don't know. I know you got a diploma and everything, and I know, I know, I know the old omen. You know what they call a doctor that graduated last in his class? A doctor. Yeah, I know, I know. I get it, but maybe it wasn't for this guy, you know? <laughs> maybe. Right. That's not, that's not a field that you just want to uh, barely scrape by, psychiatric medicine. You know, yeah. he's going to have a lot of control over medications, and maybe that gives some insight into this case as well. Yeah. Cindy got her hands on a lot of medications that um, she maybe shouldn't have been uh, able to have access to. Right. Like a, a lot. So in 1977, Dr. Makepeace bought a 30-foot catamaran sailboat that he named the Peacemaker. Ah, of um, course. A nice play on his last name there. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, Cindy was deathly afraid of water and would stay under the deck with her dog while on the boat. So they would go on these, you know, these sailing expeditions, and uh, he was essentially holding her hostage during these because she was deathly afraid of sailing, and, right. but it was the thing he loved to do, and this would drive a wedge in their relationship. Is this They couldn't... 
come to terms with each other's passions. Uh, uh, yeah. The couple's lack of interest in each other's interests drove a wedge between them. Cindy, Cindy loved to be at home, on land, gardening. Gardening right. was her favorite thing to do. Where humans belong. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we right. don't have gills. What are we doing? No, I'm just kidding. Right. This ain't Waterworld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, this this wedge that would be driven between them would eventually uh, result in them separating in, Ju- in July of 1982. They would separate after 16 years of marriage, um, but it was pretty pretty cool and amicable early on. They would still go to the theater together. Uh, they were um, still go on the occasional dinner date as well, or go to the symphony. There's a couple things that they actually did have common interest in, which was like theater and symphony. Yeah. So they would go out and uh, enjoy these things every now and then together. Roy stayed in the home that they had lived in together while Cindy rented a place in East Vancouver closer to her work. And mm-hmm. it was, a few months would go by after their amicable separation before Cindy would start to get uh, harassed and tormented. And this would go on for the next seven years. So mm-hmm. three to four months after her separation, she's living alone. She would start to begin receiving frequent calls which at first were just hangups, but then they soon progressed to threats from an eerie voice that would, would whisper. Um, there's actually audio of these voice messages that would be left on answering machines. It reminds me a little bit of like the weepy voice killer. I was about um, to there. say, yeah, that's what I thought too. The, the it's weep- someone trying yeah. to sound as creepy as possible in like a raspy, whispery voice. Whispery voice where you can barely make out what they're saying. I'm sure you'll yeah. put this in the intro. You've probably already heard this voice if you're yeah. listening to this now. Yeah. You definitely got to put that in there. All right. (laughs) So on October 12th of 1982, Cindy closed all the curtains in her condo and received a call saying, don't think pulling the drapes means I don't know you're in there. Another call the same day, you're dead, Cindy. Mm. Um, So this is really obviously um, scary stuff. A woman living alone and and getting these calls. calls, Very much like Scream yet again. And these calls exist, right? These Mm -hmm. calls are... You know, this is some hard evidence here that she was. There's evidence of this. You, even uh, Roy Makepeace, her ex-husband, would eventually start getting calls and have voice messages, and that's how we got the audio was what from his voice message machine from the same oh. caller. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. But she doesn't have any other like scarred lovers at this time, right? As far not as not that I- I'm aware of. Right. Not, that I'm aware of. Not that we're aware of, right? But she was with a married man for a year, so she obviously didn't have a problem with that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know that that's their business. I'm not saying right or wrong or whatever. What if it was the uh, ex-wife, man? Hey, uh, Roy's ex-wife coming hey. back to uh, then again. I mean, Roy and Cindy were married for 16 years or whatever before she started getting tormented. So I doubt the the Roy's uh, ex-wife was still holding a grudge after all that time. Yeah, I think she, I doubt she would wait until they would break up as well before she would start tormenting her. Man, it's probably somebody that just found her, that just noticed her living alone. Maybe they were at the hospital or around the hospital or lived in her neighborhood and they were just obsessed with her or something. Because a lot of there the was things- a point in this story where she's living in a condo and one of the neighbors, who was also a female, was also getting harassing phone calls as well. Uh huh. See so there's I mean? other witnesses around that witness seeing yeah, uh, men in their 30s uh, outside of Cindy's apartment acting strange. There's things like this that lead you to believe that she wasn't just doing all this uh, to herself right? for attention or whatever it was. Yeah. There are witnesses that, that corroborate some of her stories. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard to dismiss it. Yeah. <laughs> it really it is. is. Especially with the audio. Yeah. <clears throat> so around that same time, October 12th, 1982, Cindy and Roy had gone on one of those dinner dates. Um, and Cindy returned home um, to her home and found a pillow slashed. And it was stuffed underneath her comforter. So she finds a pillow under her comforter and it's, it's got slash marks going down at very precise cuts. She would call the police, and a constable named Pat McBride would respond, but couldn't find anything out of place. Roy showed up and took the pillow with him when he left. That's a thing that's in the, in the, the tick in the side of potentially Cindy doing some of this herself is that she would always dispose of the evidence in these cases. Like she would, she would call Roy and say, "Someone broke my uh, security lights outside, and the, yeah. and the shattered bulbs would be found." And she would, he would say, "You should give these to the police because they could have, you know, fingerprints or whatever on them." And she would say, "No, get rid of it." Just like the pillow, she gave the pillow that was cut that she'd been found in her bedroom to Roy to get rid of. So he and didn't take it on his own accord. Caught, you would you would want to present this evidence to police. It could help track the you know this perpetrator down. But she would always get rid of this evidence. So Roy didn't take the pillow on his own accord, though. No, she t- she asked him to, and he oh. disposed of it. Now that changes everything. Yeah, well, that's his story at least. Oh, his story. So if he did take it on his own accord, why would he say he did? Right. <clears throat> You know what I'm saying? So if, so if yeah. he was involved, mm-hmm. possibly, wouldn't you also want to get rid of all this evidence and he's always the one around to and dispose of it? And you would say it? she told you to? Right. That's <laughs> damn convenient. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and it also kind of makes her look a little bit out there as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So four days later, Constable McBride returned to Cindy's with deadbolts for all her doors. He and Cindy became friends, and Cindy offered him a room for rent because he was going through a separation with his wife, and he needed a place to stay while he could find his own new place. Right. And so this was kind of, it worked for both of them. You know, he needed a place to stay, and she she would like the extra protection since she's being, you know, harassed all the time by somebody. Right. And things would calm down for a while while McBride uh, stayed with her. Um, he moved in with her on November 1st, 1982. Um, and they started seeing each other romantically and would even double date with Cindy's ex, Roy McPeace, and whatever girl he was dating. Uh-huh. Um, November 22nd, 1982, while at work, Cindy found a note on her windshield with a picture of a woman that looked a lot like her with its eyes scratched out. Ooh. So now this person, she's got protection at home, so this person's turning to her workplace to torment her further. Right. Um, then on November 28th, 1982, Cindy's phone lines were cut in five places. Five Neighbors places. in the condo below. Yeah, right? That's really overboard, it seems yeah. like. It's like one. You know, it's just one line that feeds all those. You could just cut one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Five places. Really trying yeah. to put her out of business. Yeah, and she was in a multi-level condo, and there was people that lived below her that did not have their lines cut. It was only hers. It was specifically targeting Cindy. Wait, was the it neighbor- inside her apartment, the cuts? They had to have been, right? I think it, it was on the outside of the building, I would imagine. Hmm. And there was probably lines that went up to hers on the second floor and then lines that stayed on the bottom floor. This is just what I'm imagining. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of questions about that. Because if it was like the lines coming out of the wall, you know, going through the phones and all the lines were cut. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Coming out of the wall inside. that would inside. make sense. Five places. Yeah. Then it would make... Exactly. It makes sense because you have different phone hookups all through your house mm-hmm. and they just cut them all. Yeah. So this one, um, this one is one of those that is in the tick of, you know, she was actually being harassed by someone. Uh, a neighbor two doors down on this incident where her lines were cut um, reported getting harassing phone calls around that same time. Another neighbor reported seeing a strange man lurking around Cindy's house three separate times. 
Mm. So these neighbors have nothing to gain from saying that they witnessed these things as well, you know? Right. But so you don't know. You think. But you don't know if these people were lurking around to see Cindy or not. I mean, she does live in an apartment complex. Yeah, there's there's always people wandering around. You know, uh, other own apartment complexes. Exactly. Other people are getting harassing phone calls as well. So maybe mm-hmm. that person, these suspicious people, weren't even there to see her. And what if it was Cindy making those calls as well? Because she would have something to gain from proving that it wasn't just her that was getting harassed, that it, there was someone harassing women her ah, age around this time. Yes, you are Once correct. Once again, there's always another side ah, you can look at it. Always another side. Two sides to the coin. That's right. We're going to flip this coin a lot, y'all. Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> so in early December 1982, Constable Pat McBride moved out of Cindy's house, so he must have been able to find his own place, and they would continue to date, and he kept keys to her house. Um also in December of 1982, police saw Roy, her ex-husband, circling her house. He pulled behind her house into an alley and turned his lights off when the police confronted him. He said that he was there to protect his wife, Cindy, and they told him to move on. Mm-hmm. That one, man. That, I just can't yeah. get past that one. Like, can't that's get some past odd that. behavior. Very. And there was, and then there was also that same month, December 1982, Cindy claims that she heard a tapping on her bedroom window. Terrified, she ripped the curtains open to find Roy standing there holding a knife and a rifle. And he told her that he was there to protect her from whatever. She would be safe as long as he was outside. Oh, no, <laughs> that's like, okay. What the fuck, man? You can go ahead and go. <laughs> yeah. I feel better if you're not there. Holy yeah. shit. A knife and a rifle just standing there, huh? Yep. Mm, I can't believe nobody else, none of the other neighbors called on his ass. <laughs> Yeah, well, what if he's the guy that they kept seeing wandering around? Yeah, because they probably wouldn't know him. I mean, especially if he's they're not together. No. no, no. They'd already broken up. They'd lived in a home together. She moves to this place alone. All they know is her living alone. Then they see yeah. this guy wandering around. Right. Potentially with a knife and a rifle. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Roy had a theory as to who was doing this to Cindy at this time. He oh, thought that he? she was being harassed by the mafia. The slash uh-huh. pillow and calls were like the Godfather movies, he said. And maybe Cindy had treated a family member of the mafia badly, supposedly, while she was working at the hospital. It's quite far-fetched. You mean a child of the... I don't think so. I she guess the horse pediatric. head in her bed that she found would, would also lead you in that direction. Yes. We forgot I, to mention that one. Don't forget about that, bro. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> horrific scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the she bag like, that she found on her doorstep with dead fishes and the, and the note that said you'll be sleeping with the fishes. You know, right, right. Now forgot that, to mention that too. Right. Now that could tie to the mafia. Uh, no. <laughs> but she worked with kids, man. She worked with kids right. mostly. I, I just don't think she, she, had, she had it in her to do some kids wrong. And she was well-renowned in her job. I just don't think yeah, you... She was doing the Lord's work, man, helping kids yeah. with psychological issues. Like That's what I'm saying. And, and she probably felt like she was really giving back because you know she probably felt like she needed help with psychological issues as a child with all the shit that she went through. You know, being yeah. molested by her brother, being mistreated, eating in the dark and shit like that, not feeling like part of your family. So it's pretty, it's pretty obvious that she, she had a love for this field. I just can't see her... It makes you wonder, did she job. have a love for this field because of what she had suffered, the trauma that she had endured growing up and knowing how much it can affect you? Yes. Wanting to prevent that from affecting other people the way it did her. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. That's why I think yeah. she was driven to be so good in her job and why she was there for so long. I just, yeah. I think this is just such a stretch from Roy. It just makes me more suspicious of him now. Absolutely. And also, does this, this little snippet, uh, around this time, Roy also allegedly begged Cindy to move back in with him and she refused, which made him very angry. 
there's motive yeah. right there. Like That's he's obviously motive. not moving on well from this relationship splitting up. Exactly. Maybe it was more her that wanted to split up than him. Mm-hmm. And they had been together for a damn long time. And there was a lot of stuff that came out from other witnesses, like her, her co-workers at the hospital that said over the years, she'd come in a lot of times with bruises, black eyes, and she would lie. But eventually she would come out and say that it had been from Roy striking her. Oh, well, this is really this is really adding up here, mm-hmm. you know. And then all those double dates and shit. I bet Roy was initiating all those. It wasn't so much like, oh, let's do a double date and remain friends. It's more like, let me remain in your life. Let me remain in the picture. Yes. Let me keep an mm-hmm. eye on you while you're dating these other guys and doing this yep. and that. And it's funny yeah. that when she's dating these other guys, you know, he's not around. You know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't. He's not outside the house anymore and all that shit. Yep. And it's right after the officer. Uh, moves out. Moves out. Yeah, he's back outside the house again. Yep. Yeah, it's yep. it's too coincidental. Yep. So then, on January fourth, nineteen eighty three, more disturbing pictures arrive in the mail, and uh, McBride finds a note from the cutout letters on Cindy's lawn. The pictures are of corpses, knives, and of women with their faces scratched out. The letters contain phrases like "mangled pulp" and "dead." So McBride being the uh, constable that had lived with her briefly and was still checking in on her. Um, Just getting more progressively uh, very sadistic and dangerous at this point. Um, Then on January 27th, 1983, Cindy is found. This is is where it escalates. It escalates to her now being attacked physically and almost killed. On January 27th, 1983, she would be found by her friend Agnes unconscious in her garage she tells police that she had answered a knock at her back door and a man grabbed her he dragged her into the garage where a second man was waiting it was dark in the garage so she couldn't make out their features one of them slashed her hand with a knife and knotted a black nylon tightly around her neck um, causing cindy to pass out she had dozens of cuts on her body made by a scalpel or some sort of other sharp instrument on her arms and legs there were no serious injuries, though. Cindy had vague memories of being raped with a knife. That's where I, I kind of mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, supposedly the person, when they left her, she vaguely remembers them saying, it will take a long time to die. So they were supposedly leaving their, her there, knowing that no one was going to come for a long time, that she would be alone, st- slowly being strangled by that nylon stocking Yeah. Um, until and she she's, perished. And she's also tied up, too. So if nothing else, she could die from starvation. Yeah. Right, or dehydration, rather. Yep. Yeah, so this has escalated now, and now the police are getting more more involved, and now they're very suspicious of Roy Makepeace, her ex-husband. On February 1983, David Bauer Smith, the veteran officer in charge of the investigation, believed that Roy Makepeace was terrorizing his ex-wife. Roy, however, had an alibi for that night of the attack. He said that he was at work. Then he went to eat alone at a restaurant following that. Um mm-hmm. And of course, there's not a lot to really corroborate that other than him being at work, but I think this occurred after he would have gotten off work, so possible he could have done this. Yeah, especially um, since his all- alibi is that he was alone afterwards. Yeah, Anytime somebody's like, oh, I was alone at that time doing this, it's like, well, of it's course really you were. alibi, right? Of course you were. Yeah. Yeah, it's sus. Uh, David Bauer Smith also believed that Cindy was withholding information, so he arranged for her to take a polygraph exam. Roy, he would ask to take a polygraph uh, test, but and Roy would uh, say yes. However, his lawyer would advise against it because he had some sort of medical issue that said uh, he had like hypertension or something. And he said that it would have it, it would have made it look like he was lying, even if he wasn't supposedly. And Roy uh-huh. got out of taking the polygraph test. 
Wow. Yeah. Um, Cindy would fail the uh, polygraph test twice. She confessed that she recognized one of the two men that attacked her in January, but refused to name for fear that he would go after her family. And see, and so that she would fails give... when she when she's asked if she knew who it was that had done this. She said no, and it would prove to be a lie. Mm. So, but if it was someone who was close to her family, someone that knew a lot about her, like say Roy someone who was someone who was in her life for sixteen fucking years, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, maybe they have some information that makes you feel helpless. You know a lot I mean? of stuff is adding here up here that makes Roy look guilty right yeah, now, it does. like a lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot. So in March of 1983, Cindy moved for the third time in less than a year. Around this time, she began seeing a doctor to find to help her deal mentally with her problems, Dr. Connolly. Uh, they became friends more so than a patient and uh, doctor per, uh, relationship. And Dr. Connolly would continue to prescribe her medications for anxiety um, as they were more than friends. And so it was kind of breaking that that code that you're supposed to have as a doctor. Yeah, she breaks that with everybody she meets. That's a, that's a doctor. Yeah, she, she's very good at um, winning people over very quickly. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. She rem- kind of um, reminds me of uh, Dana Sue Gray in that instance. You know, like worked in the health field and like everyone she yeah. met, she kind of put her little charm on, her little spell. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Not that yeah. she's poisoning people or anything. I'm just saying. <laughs> right, right, right. The fact that she moved so much makes you kind of believe that she really was afraid, that she was not necessarily perpetrating this against herself. Right. Like, it seemed like she did everything she could to get away from this situation. The police, at a certain point, decided that she was sick mentally and that she was doing this to herself and that, you know, they, they stopped really investigating this stuff as much as they should have. And that may be why she just kept moving. She's like, the police aren't helping me. No one's helping me. What am I supposed to do? Right. Only thing I can do is hide. Yeah, but she's still tied to her career, her job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she refuses to to completely go into hiding and not live her life. Right. Which um, she's still at this time that. going out can't walking her that. dog alone at night and things like that. That's another thing that points people in the direction of like, why would she do that if she was so afraid? Like, yeah. Oh no, a lot of but people. But if you're think being tormented in your own home constantly, I'd almost feel safer outside. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Because like when you're, you're watching a, a movie, a horror movie, it's like the people run upstairs in their own home. You're like, get out of here! Like, yeah, it's like, why are you running upstairs? You can't jump yeah, out the my window. Phone up lines there. are being cut. Like I'm being strangled in my own garage. Like I'd feel safer outside too. At least there's people that can help me if I need help. Yeah, exactly. Go run, scream on a knock at a door, or somebody. Shit, yeah. there's got to be somebody that you can get get attention. So on April 14th, 1983, the phone calls started happening again. Uh, in late April 1983, she would move for a fourth time. Then June through July 1983, she would visit her brother in Indonesia, and Roy Makepeace would pay for the trip. He's still so involved. It's crazy, right? Yeah, it is. He's, he's really obsessed he's with He's still her. trying to win her over, it seems. Yes, he is. Yes, still he taking is. her out to dinner. He's paying for trips now. Like He's showing up and protecting her, supposedly, outside of her home. Yeah, and these things we know are true. Like these aren't. This isn't like the police witnessed him outside of her home. This isn't something that she just said or whatever. Like, right. It's legit. Oh, yeah, he's still heavily involved in her life, and that's, that's just suspect at this point. Yeah. On August 22nd, 1983, letters began arriving at Cindy's work, uh, one of them reading, You're dead, cunt. Okay. Then on October 15th, 1983, a strangled cat was found in Cindy's garden with a note attached, You're next. Hmm. Whoa. That's wild, man. That's yeah. wild to think that, you know, 
she may potentially she may have done that herself, like strangled the cat just to get people to believe that she was being tormented. Uh huh. That's that's a yeah, that's hard to believe. Yeah, you think I don't know. This man. happens more than once, by the way. There's there's multiple dead cats in this story. Oh really? Did she have a cat problem at her house? I don't know. I'm guessing they were just like neighbors' cats. I would like I to know how. Her, her I would like to know. She had how a dog. I don't think she had any cats. Okay, I was about to say I'd like to know how she felt about cats. Did she hate cats? Because you know, it's possible. Yeah, it is possible. We never found a strangled dog, and we know she had a dog. We know she was a dog person. Doesn't necessarily mean she hated cats, but that's right. That's right. Maybe she just didn't. Her want dog her was house. never harmed. Coincidentally, after all this, all this stuff, the break-ins, all of the tormenting, dead cats found. Her dog was a little like toy poodle type dog, I believe. Oh. Very small. Well, that's dog why. was never harmed. That's why. The dog was not a threat. If she had like a pit bull or like a German shepherd or a Doberman or some shit. Or they, it was her doing this, and that's why she wouldn't obviously wouldn't harm her own dog. Yeah, true that. She'd kill true a neighbor's that. cat instead. True that. Once again, two sides of the coin. That's true. That's true. Because, yeah, because you would think because the dog is so small, it's an easy target if you really wanted to scare her. And you've well, already. Yeah, if been, you want to torment yeah. her, if you really are committed to just making her life hell, you're, yeah. you'd kill her dog. Yeah, why not kill her dog? It's just a little toy yeah. poodle, right? If you're, if you're really that sadistic and you've already been inside, you've already slashed pillows, you've attacked her in her garage, why can't you get yep. it? You could get it. Yep. Mm. You've left her on death's door already. That's right. But yeah, you leave, you let her, you know, her little dog live, but you're willing to kill other animals. So I, that's one part that I just find it hard to believe. Yeah. That's strange. Uh, in late October 1983, someone destroyed another thing that was close to Cindy, her garden. Um, she insist, insisted that Roy Makepeace wouldn't have done this. However, five years later, in a journal, she had a journal that she kept. She did suspect her ex-husband because he had destroyed the garden, um, her garden, years prior when they were together. That's some... Man, so, that's some, like, so would he do, do it or partner. would he to do not? To your wife, like, she loves her garden and you destroy that while you're married to her, like... <laughs> I just don't get just her alibi, something about though. a person. I just don't get this whole thing. It's like, oh, he, he, he insists, she insists that Roy wouldn't do it, but yet, oh, but he did do it once. Uh, yeah, but she didn't admit that until five years later when she was convinced at that point that he had been doing this. Uh-huh. At the moment we're in, in 1983, she's still not wanting to believe that Roy is doing this. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Uh-huh. But she's saying that he destroyed their garden once while they were married, though. Yes. Yeah. See what I'm saying? So 1983 yeah. is after they were married. Yep. yep. So if yep. she's telling the truth, then he already had destroyed the garden once. Or yep. maybe she just makes all that up five years later, like you say, just yep. to just to add more evidence to Once him. again, this fucking case will drive it's, you mad. Yes, it's already it's already getting there. You're going back and forth. You're like, it's obviously Roy. And then you're like, wait, it's definitely Cindy doing this. Like, <laughs> it's just You're just back and forth. But what if it's a third party? Right? Yeah. It, it just doesn't seem like it's a third party. It just seems too yeah. focused. It's one of these yeah. two. Yeah. What uh, would be the motive for just some random person to, to torment? Like, if you wanted to kill her, you could have killed her so many times now. Uh, right. This is such a personal thing. You know, like they say, like, crimes of passion. Like, this is a, this is a, like attacks of passion here. This is someone who cares about Cindy enough to want to torment her, I suppose. Like, it's not a stranger. Yes, Exactly. Exactly. They want her, and they've honed in on her specifically. Yeah. yeah. So in November of 1983, uh, McBride, the constable, finds another note on Cindy's porch. Four days later, he finds another strangled cat and a cat that was hit by a car. He convinces Cindy to hire his friend, a private investigator named Ozzy Caban, um, and her phone lines were cut around the same time again. 
So just nonstop, nonstop with the cats and the phone lines being cut. Yeah. On January 30th, 1984, at 6 p.m., Cindy calls Ozzy for help. 15 main- minutes later, he kicks in her door and finds Cindy on the floor. She was in the hallway. I think she was face up, and a paring knife stabbed through her left hand with a note attached. A black stocking was uh, knotted and tied tightly around her neck once again, and she had been hit on the head. There was... Uh, you know, like a bruise and like a lump on her head. Mm-hmm. There was a needle mark in her right arm, but no substances were found in her system. And Cindy said she couldn't remember anything about the attack, but there uh, there are still no clues or strong suspects other than Roy Makepeace. Another serious Man. attack where she was strangled with a stocking and discovered just in time. Also, it's- the knife through the hand, through the note, into the floor. Bro, mm-hmm. you, think, you think someone would really do that to themselves? That's trying to... What point are you trying to make? That's I mean, pretty next level, right? That's got to hurt like a motherfucker. You know how much nerves you have in your hands? Yeah. I mean, right through all those bones and shit? Yeah. I don't know, man. That When I saw that, I was like, I just don't know how somebody could do this to themselves. It's I want to say it wasn't like through the center of her hand. It was like on the, if I remember right, it was like through the skin, on maybe on the side of her hand. I don't know. Well, but either was, way. Either way, you're really going to extreme lengths if you're doing this to yourself. Her hand was pinned to, to the floor. To believe you. One way or another, right? Right. So, yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty brutal. Unless she had some sort of maybe she gave herself some Novocaine. Maybe that was the shot in the arm. Maybe it was like some kind of numbing solution. Yep. You'll never know. You know, maybe she numbed her right and it is funny that she was probably right-handed and her left hand was stuck to the ground. But also, so, what is the point? I don't understand why you leave her in this condition to be found. Like, you're trying to get other people to see that you've done this. Mm-hmm. When you've already had her, like, you got her there. You could kill her. You could do whatever you want. She's unconscious, and you leave her to be displayed alive. I, don't, I just don't get the, the motive here. Hmm. Or maybe they thought, or maybe he heard the guy coming. You know, maybe he heard the detective pull up. Or the uh, Ozzy. What's his name? He was a private investigator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe he heard Ozzy pull up or knew that she had made the call to him. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows, man? This is this is such a weird case. Yeah. It, it, it so could... then on February 14th, 1984, Roy Makepeace is questioned for almost six hours by police. He claims to be as baffled by the incidents as Cindy, but he does offer up a theory that Cindy's work with troubled children has angered a family with ties to organized crime. So he's still sticking Here we with go. the uh, mob thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another thing that makes people look guilty, too, is when they have their own theories. Like, I think it's the mafia. Like, Yeah. I don't know. That just seems like something that we've studied a lot, and, like, guilty people always offer up alternative theories. Hell, yeah, because they thought about it. They're already thinking about it. They're like, well, if I didn't do it, They're already thinking about how they're going to answer these questions, and they have these little stories, elaborate stories of what it could have been other than them, you know? Exactly. They know how guilty they look, and they have to come up with something more convincing than I didn't do it. So Mm -hmm. they've been doing some thinking. Yeah. Then in the summer of 1984, the harassment intensified. Phone calls at Cindy's home and work. Phone phone cut. Uh, phone lines cut. Broken windows. Um, it, we we would venture into arson very soon. There would be several fires being started in her homes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she's losing weight and withdraws from colleagues uh, during work hours. So she's no longer that bubbly, fun person to work with. She's getting very reserved and um, seemingly depressed while at work. Yeah, understandably uh, so. Oh yeah. On June 18th, 1984, Cindy triggered the personal alarm that Ozzy gave her after finding the back door partially open. Inside the house, Ozzy found a sexually explicit birthday note and a Rothman cigarette butt, 
which was not Cindy's brand. She was a, a cigarette smoker, but she she didn't smoke that brand. Okay. Cindy's small dog, Heidi, had been tied to the kitchen table with the same type of string that was used to strangle this cat's and beaten to the point of bruising. I don't remember that part, but damn. Ah. So the the dog was harmed, not killed, but... So she was... It, you, you Now you have to believe that she was willing to go to the lengths to at least severely hurt her own dog. Yeah, if you, yeah, if you believe she did this... You have to believe that. And and you got to think her dog is probably one of her only forms of security. It's probably like a little alarm system. Yeah, if only the dog you know could freaking talk, right? We I know. would get to the bottom of this shit. <laughs> we need a Doolittle. We need somebody yeah, we in need here. The, the, like somebody. that episode of Black Mirror where they're able to attach the probes to animals and, and like retract their memories and put yes. them on screen. Like we need that. Like that episode yes. Crocodile. Yeah, man. We need everybody to just go ahead and have those Zen eyes for now, yeah. you know? We can just take everybody's memories. <laughs> yeah. So then in late June, early July, 1984, a fourth strangled cat is found dead. At what point are you like, okay, I get it with the cats. Like, yeah. Why are you still doing I, this? I know, right? It does seem absurd. It seems so petty. It right. seems like if It's like either kill me or like enough with the cats already. Yeah. Kill me I, or don't. I don't understand where this is going. <laughs> that's how you just go out in your backyard. Just kill me already. I was the, scared after it, the first cat you killed, but after it, the third one, I'm just like annoyed now. Yeah. I mean, it's it seems petty, doesn't it? It seems like yeah. if someone is really trying to move forward and scare her and is really getting a kick out of this, I feel like they would get more creative. I feel like I, How many I do. threats can you do without just following through? It's like you tell me you're going to punch me like 50 times over the course of five years. I'm like, are you ever yeah. going to do it? Right. Eventually, it kind of loses its sting. Yeah. Right, you think, but I think with Cindy, it really was affecting her more and more, though. You know, she yeah. just it, it just kept tearing her apart. It was destroying her slowly, and maybe this is what they wanted to do. So they just kept buying time. Yeah, I don't know, but she was falling yeah, apart. This person no could doubt. have intentionally been trying to drive her mad, drive her into yes. drug addiction, until she eventually took her own life. And well, then and they, think, they couldn't be blamed for it. And the and the more mad that they drive her, the less sleep that she gets, the weaker she gets, the less she wants to eat, the thinner she gets, the weaker she gets, the easier yep. she is as a victim. Yeah. Over and over. You know? Very well put. Yeah. Summer is upon us, if you haven't noticed, and the world seems to be slowly returning to normal. I'm looking forward to cookouts with friends and spending time with family. Nothing like that summer feeling. But I got a life hack for you. Best Fiends makes it like summertime in your brain all the time. Best Fiends is a matching puzzle game that if I'm honest, I'm downright obsessed with. It makes time fly and it's free to download. And with thousands of puzzles to solve, there's something new every day. I'm currently on level 207, so I've got plenty more slug bashing to do. Best Fiends has some pretty cool features that keep the game interesting like dynamite and converter squares to help you rack up big points. There's just so much to love about this game. Give it a try and tell me how much you love slinging stuff at slugs. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's Best Friends without the R. Best Fiends. So then on July 3rd, 1984 at 8.30 p.m., Cindy tells Ozzy, the private detective, that she'll be walking her dog Heidi in Dunbar Park Three and a half hours later, Cindy knocks on a stranger's door and collapses. A black stocking is tied tightly around her neck yet again, and the last thing she remembers is being stopped on the street and asked for questions or asked for directions by a bearded man and a blonde woman in a dark green van. Of course. Of course it's a van. van. Can't have a case like this without a van. Right. Um, 
there was two needle marks in her in her arm. So the last thing she remembers is being asked for directions by this by this couple here. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, there was two needle marks in her arm, but no drugs in her system aside from the prescribed antidepressants. She was confused and incoherent during questioning. Her eyes are puffy, and she had a bloody nose and a sore ankle. So this is something that I'm just connecting right now: is that she keeps being found with these needle marks, but the drug, no drugs in her system, which makes me wonder if she, if she was doing this herself, if she would stab herself with a needle and not actually inject herself, but she would take pills, ingest them, and, yeah. but the, the needle was to make it look like the person drugged her to incapacitate her. Right. It just seems like a reoccurring thing. Yeah, it does. And I'm guessing if she takes enough of these antidepressants, then she can pass out? Or do you think she's choking herself to... I mean, h- well, how do you she, think she's, she's becoming unconscious Taking then? strong painkillers and things like that, that could definitely make you pass out. Okay. But she's saying like there's no drugs... And- but like in this last one, it says there's no drugs in her system aside from antidepressants. Yeah. Is morphine an antidepressant? Well, no. I mean, she wasn't out. She wasn't. We don't know for a fact that she did pass out. She says she she was. That's the last thing she remember before she passed out. She walked up to a neighbor's door and knocked on the door. That's all we know. That's right. So you're going off of her story here that she got you know assaulted or drugged yeah. by these people, but uh-huh. no one witnessed it. So. Right. 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 No green van. It's like, if these two people pull up in a green van, why didn't they take you? They have a van. I mean, that's the whole point of the van. Right. Oh, yeah. 100%. That's odd. So we get some shocking revelations here uh, around this time. In August 1984, at Aussie, the private detective suggestion, Cindy undergoes hypnosis to help her recall details of the most recent abduction. Uh, a hypnotist named Hal Booker is unable to recover any useful information during the session. However, on October 2nd, 1984, during her second hypnosis session, she states that she once witnessed a double murder. She cannot or will not give any details. Um, then on October 4th, 1984, Sinead and confront the police about the lack of progress in the case, threatening to go to the press. The detectives, now led by Chris Bjord, uh, explained that they simply had no leads in the case. And by this point, all of Cindy's co-workers and supporters had been investigated. Interpol had looked into Roy's background, and police had secretly staked out Cindy's house for days without seeing anything suspicious. As we mentioned, every time the police would stake out her house, nothing would happen, which right. is, is all. I guess it, it makes sense in a way. Like if yeah. this person is really surveying her house, even more so than the police, then they know when something's off, when a strange car is parked out front, it's probably Hell surveillance. Yeah. Hell yeah. So. They're not going to show also, up. You could, on the other side of the coin, you could say that she knew that she was being surveyed, so she just didn't do any of these acts against herself at this time. You could also say that. Or you could also say that the attacker is maybe someone who's involved with police, or maybe a police officer yep. himself. Yep. You don't never know. I mean, because then someone, that, that person would have inside knowledge to when the house is being watched, when it's not, you know, yep. what evidence to leave, what evidence not to leave. And it's not crazy, man. You know, there's been <laughs> there's been some serial killer police officers, quite a few that we've studied. Mm-hmm. You know, what D'Angelo? Oh, no I mean, the, right? the Golden State Killer was a, was yeah, a police officer. Exactly. So, I mean, it's it's not it's not out of the realm. And I think a lot of these police officers um, who work on forces and do shit like this, I'd say, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably being I'm being bold here. I'm shooting from the hip, but I'd say sixty to seventy percent of them are never caught because of their connections. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say. Yeah, I think so. I don't think that's crazy, um, because especially in small towns, small areas, small jurisdictions. Um, it's all about who you know. And if you're a police officer and you're a well-respected police officer, who's not going to take your word for it, for whatever? Right. Or even suspect you in the first place. It's, it's a crazy, it's a good cover-up. It could work. Yeah. 
All right, so we get some more details. We, we briefly mentioned that she said to, during her first hypnosis session that she remembered witnessing a double murder. She wouldn't give any details at that time. Finally, in January of 1985, during her third hypnosis session, they were able to get more out of her on that. She revealed that in 1981, during a yacht trip with Roy on the Peacemaker yacht that he had, he she witnessed him uh, having murdered and dismembered a young couple on Thormanby Island. Um, oh, shit. And the, the the story behind this was that she had passed out. It was uh, late at night, I believe, and they were like in this bay area. Um, uh-huh. And she awoke to hearing a scream, and she came up onto the deck and yelled back out to see if she could get a response. Like, what you know, what was that? Roy wasn't there, and they were basically docked at like this this cabin along the coast. And she gets out of the boat and goes over to the cabin, opens the door, and sees Roy standing there. This is her story: standing there, uh, angry, and he had murdered this couple and she's upset he wrangles her in sets her on the bed and supposedly you know he dismembers the body and um they don't talk much about it following this it's a pretty far-fetched story uh-huh um they the detectives would later learn that cindy's sister melanie was also on that trip and noticed nothing unusual and the oh. police uh they did they did have the canadian mounted police go search this area where she said this cabin was they couldn't find a cabin matching the description they couldn't find a missing couple from that time there's nothing else that linked this to reality at all interesting i was just about and to of say course, roy man would if deny she, this well of course but i was like man if she witnessed that that would explain why roy was so obsessed with keeping tabs on her you know, if she had witnessed something like that, oh, for sure, he'd be for like, sure. "Whoa, I got to keep a close ass eye on her, and even scare her and remind her of what I'm capable of, so she doesn't tell anyone." Right. And maybe the fear of that coming out just got to him, and he finally did kill her because she couldn't mm-hmm. handle it anymore, and she was well. Like, at a certain point, this. she calls him with a recorded line with the police uh, listening in, and tries to get him to, you know, admit to having done that. She brings up, "I remember what I did, and I'm going to have to tell the police or whatever," and he just doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't say anything. No, that's that's the story. The the take on it I got was that he just ignored that, and moved on to why sh- why did you think I'm doing this to you? Didn't talk oh. about this this double murder. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I believe my response would be like, you need to stop making shit up. What the hell are you up. talking about? You need to stop <laughs> right. that shit right now before I go to prison on some dumb shit. That's how right. I would be responding I'd to say this. You, you need to become a fiction writer because that's a crazy story you just wrote. Exactly. Exactly. I wouldn't just be like, okay, well, yeah, uh, but anyways, why do you think it's me? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <I wouldn't> <laughs> <just> <laughs> Let's not gloss over this, Roy. <laughs> this is a big fucking tale well, here. We'll get back to the double murder later, Cindy, but uh, right. yeah, nah, Roy, nah, Roy. That's that's weird, man. It's weird. So then on June 21st, 1985, Cindy overdoses on pills in an apparent suicide attempt. She's released from the hospital in less than a week after promising to stay with her brother. She goes home alone instead. Then on June 27th, that's another thing, dude. There's a lot of times where she's hospitalized. Um, She's even spends some time in a psychiatric center. Right. And they just keep releasing her. Like, I think she needs, she's making it clear she needs more treatment. She's struggling. And it seems like they're just in a hurry to get rid of her. Huh. That's, that is weird. But also, I mean, they're probably thinking, you're in the health field. You're in a psychiatric field. You can handle yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like Clearly we got, she can't. Like either she's being tormented she and she's not safe at home and it'd be better for her to be in a psychi- psychiatric center. Right. And, you know, for a while. 
to like figure out what's going on. They keep sending her home, and then these things are happening on like a weekly basis. She's, she's calling and reporting to the police. And these violent attacks are happening endlessly yeah. over the course of years. Yeah, I don't I know. know, man. I know it. It starts to look fishy. It starts to look like the boy who cried wolf. It really yeah. does. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. Then on June 27th, 1985, her phone lines were cut again. She ignored the phone company's recommendation to have the wires encased in protective plastic. <laughs> she shouldn't have to do that, though. That's some shit. She shouldn't have to, but she does have to at this point. How many She's, times has it yeah. happened? She's had her phone lines cut. Even the phone company's like, look, we like taking your money to refix this, but it, yeah. it, it's, you know, don't you consider maybe protecting the wires a little bit so that we're not out here every week? Right. Yeah, do something. Got, there's like some metal conduit, you know, that you could run wires through as well. Probably be a little more expensive, but I guarantee you they'd oh, yeah. have to bring a fucking sawzall to cut your phone lines. Right. You know? I mean, it might be worth yep. it at this point. Then they'd probably just destroy your phone itself. Yeah, yeah, probably. Or just cut the power altogether. Yeah. Then in July of 1985, a week-long police stakeout comprised of 14 strike force officers is done on Cindy and Roy. The officers believe no, uh, they, they observe no suspicious activity. So they stake them out for a while with 14 people and witness nothing. Um, mm. So it's, it's, it's not as though the police are not trying to figure out what's going on. They've interviewed right. people. They've given polygraph tests. They've staked out what's going on. They've, I mean, they've, they've, they've definitely tried to get to the bottom of what's going on. Yeah, that one, that one detective even lived with her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, I know, man. It's crazy. Then in mid-July 1985, Cindy reports a silent phone call to the police. She is apparently unaware that the phone call was recorded by the phone company and that this recording indicated that she had dialed her own number. Hmm. Not looking good on Cindy now, you know? It goes to go back and forth between Roy and Cindy. Yeah. It's a possibility that it's a little bit of both, that Roy was antagonizing her, messing with her, and, and possibly assaulting her, and that she was also simultaneously going a little bit mad herself. Uh-huh. Yeah, could be. Could be. I mean, at this point, I, I can't understand how she could stay sane if someone was if someone was harassing her. It's just nuts how many incidents happen. On July 27th, she re- uh, 1985, she receives a cosmetic case full of rancid meat in the mail. On August 5th, 1985, she reports the first of three arsons at her home. A basement window was open, but there were no signs of forced entry. Um, there was a small fire that had happened in her home. Uh, on August 6th, 1985, a second arson occurs. Um, and detectives begin to suspect that Cindy isn't being completely honest with them and ask Detective Carol Halliday to review the case and render her opinion to it. Halliday concludes that Cindy is staging the incidents herself. This had been suspected as far back as the first attack in 1983 um, when they arranged for the first of two polygraph tests. Then on August 21st, a third arson occurs. Again, the window, uh, the open window doesn't appear to have been forced open and dust co- and cobwebs have not been disturbed. Cindy would receive over $9,500 from her insurance company on this occurrence. Yeah, that was the one where her parents were there. Remember, her parents were over for dinner, uh, I yeah. think, on this third one. And they even remember the fire and everything. And like, But what's weird is, no, wait, they were woke up. They were woke up at night. So the parents had just went to bed. It was past midnight. And then she comes screaming and knocking on their door, telling them to get up. She heard something in the basement, and her dad was like, well, I heard that too. He goes downstairs, they open the, the door to the basement, and the whole basement's engulfed in flames. Right. So and this might have been the occasion, too, where someone ran outside, and there was a man, supposedly in his 30s, that was standing yes. out on the sidewalk, and they asked him to get help because their phone lines had been cut. Yes, and, and he they ran. they couldn't make the call to the, to the 
uh, fire department, and he just ran off instead of uh, you know agreeing to help them. Right. That okay. So here here's something else too. Right. So the cops. This is what they say. They say Cindy had to have done it because the window was open. Yeah, but. No cobwebs, no dust was disturbed. Okay, cool. How does that stop someone from throwing a Molotov cocktail through the fucking window? Right. I mean, I, yeah, I could, I could like not the, touch some anything. Like gasoline-soaked rags that they lit up, something along those lines. Anything, anything. Yeah. And they said they heard a noise in the basement, you know, before it happened. But then again, playing devil's advocate here, Cindy was she still could have awake. Gone down there and done it. She was still awake. Yep. And her parents had just went to bed. They just went to bed, and now there's a fire. Really? What are the coinci- What what a coincidence? Especially if someone just threw something in. You mean what were they doing? Waiting for all the waiting for the upstairs lights to go off, but they right. knew Cindy was still awake. Odd. Super yep. odd. On December first, nineteen eighty five, Cindy moved to the Vancouver suburb of Richmond, um, where she would eventually be found dead. On December 11th, 1985, she was uh, found wandering by a pond near the university campus without shoes or a coat after going missing during her lunch break. A black stocking was knotted around her throat. Once again, there was a needle mark on her arm. Once again, incoherent and confused, she was unable to remember anything about the incident yet again. Mm -hmm. Detective Halliday consulted psychiatrist Anthony Marcus, and Marcus rendered the opinion that Cindy engineered the harassment herself. Police declined to press criminal mischief uh, charges against Cindy and agreed to enter her into therapy which she does not do. Instead, she continues to, uh, to do informal sessions with an unlicensed therapist named Con- Connolly. Um, for the first time since the incidents began, Cindy is surrounded by more doubters than believers at this point. Her parents, Ozzy Caban, and a handful of close friends remain convinced that someone was harassing her, but the police and other experts did not accept these uh, reports as you know someone actually harassing them anymore. They, they believe that Cindy was doing this to herself. Right. They were narrow. They were really focusing in on Cindy at this time. They'd kind of just blocked out the idea that there was someone else involved at this point. Yeah, and I, th- I honestly think for good reason at this point. Yeah, it, it's tough. Uh, to, it's tough to be convinced the other way. Yeah, on April fifteenth, nineteen eighty six, yet another fire uh, happens in Cindy's home. Arson investigators determined that the fire was started inside the house. Cindy accused Roy of starting the fire, unaware that he was in South Africa at the time. This one really hurt her cause here. Um, this was the one where the neighbor, though, saw the man in his 30s standing near the house where the fire was started. So, I mean, that doesn't mean, again, though, that Roy didn't have connections, though, to other right. people. He could have easily got somebody and been like, hey, you know, because Roy was pretty wealthy. I mean, what he's better time for her than to when you're in another country to make it look like you're not the one doing all this exactly. to just hire someone to do this? Pay them yeah. money, and then you're in another country. You have a built-in alibi that makes her look crazy for saying you did it. Right. This guy's obviously wealthy and established. He could have been like, "Hey, you know, I'll pay you five thousand dollars to go throw, go throw a Molotov cocktail through this basement window and leave." Yep. I mean, it's that easy to set this up. I mean, this is 1986. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Hmm. So at this point, Cindy would be evicted from the house. Obviously, I mean, she's starting. There's a fire started every other week. Right, home, I'd want her out of there too. Regardless yeah, whether it was her or someone else doing it, I'd be like, "You're just a fire waiting to happen here." Yeah, either way, you're you're fire bait. You got to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she was depressed and suicidal at this point, and given a six month leave of absence from work in April of 1986, one therapist uh, on therapist Connolly's advice, Doug Hack, committed Cindy to St. Paul's Hospital, where a psychologist reviewed Cindy's file and classified the attacks on and arsons as psychotic behavior on the part of Cindy. Um, Doctor Sunmu and psychologist. Ken Durkhol reached the same conclusion. So several mental health experts have come to the conclusion that Cindy had been doing this to herself. 
Psychiatrist Wesley Friesen believed that Connolly's insistence in the harassment was real, uh, was real, hampered by Cindy's treatment, and consider it possible that Cindy could kill herself and stage it to look like a murder so that Roy Makepeace would be blamed. Connolly himself concedes that this is a possibility. Oh. So even the, the person that was close to her he started to believe that this was possible. On July 15, 1986, she would be released from the psychiatric ward and start therapy with Dr. Friesen, and she showed great improvement throughout that summer. Um, and she would buy a house that that fall in September of 1986 in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um, however, by October of 18, 1986, the harassment um, had seemingly stopped, and she changed her last name to James after finally uh, finalizing her divorce from Roy Makepeace. Seems like she's on the right path now. She's gotten yeah. help. She's got a new place. She's trying to move on. I think officially ending it with Roy was a chance for a fresh start. Yes. Um, and changing her last name. Well, she didn't even go to her maiden last name. Um, she chose James. She just felt like it was a complete fresh start. Right. Because um, her, her maiden name would have been Hack. Um, then on November 1986, Cindy is fired from the Blenheim house for poor work performance. She had worked there since 1975. It's a blow to her, uh, to her as well, um, of course. And she'd loved working with children. However, she got back on her feet by taking refresher courses in nursing. And she would ultimately be hired at Richmond General uh, hospital in August of 1987. So she gets back on her feet, gets another job working in the medical field. Um, but in late August 1987, it starts again. Oh, here um, we she go. She would report a broken window and a window pried open in her home. In the first week of September 1987, she reported a, co- a hole cut in a window. Then in February of 1988, she reported her basement door broken. On October 9th, Roy Makepeace allegedly got a visit at his apartment from two unknown men who waited outside his door for an hour. Two days later, he got a message on his answering machine uh, with that same voice that Cindy had been getting calls from, that that raspy, whispery voice, and it said, Cindy dead meat soon. Another Uh message the next day said, hey man, more smack, more downers, another grand after we waste the cunt, no more deal. Oh. Roy had these tapes recorded. He had them, and rather than give them to the police, he shared the tapes with his lawyer who said that he should share them with police, but he refused to. And these tapes, they're, they're available. You can hear the, the Cindy Dead Meat Soon audio. Dude, why there. does this sound like people who are working for him, though? Like, just giving him updates. Like, hey, man, more smack. So, okay, so they want yes, more smack that's... and more down. They want drugs from him and then another grand after they kill her. Or we're not if dealing I'm being honest, anymore. I think it was, if I'm being honest, I believe it was Cindy that made these these calls and these voicemails. And they're, that's her idea is trying to make it look like he's working with a group of people. Mm-hmm to terrorize her, rip off her drugs, um, and ultimately kill her. Hmm. The voice has been actually listened to by experts, and they believe it to be uh, a very close connection to to Cindy's voice. Really? It actually sounds like a woman to me when I listen to it. It sounds like a woman trying to sound raspy like a man. It's Yeah. uh, I don't know. You have to hear it to understand. It'll be in the intro. Interesting. But on October 26, 1988, at midnight, Cindy triggered the alarm given to her by Ozzy Caban. He finds her in her garage, partially new, with a, ba- a black stocking knotted around her neck, her hands and feet bound with another stocking. She says that she had been grabbed from behind while getting out of her car. She claimed there was two men. Cindy was nearly dead this time and was taken to the hospital where she had worked. Um, she was briefly in a coma, uh, and she would have ultimately slowly recover and was soon released. It's just amazing to me, just over and over again, she's... I don't know what could be done. What? How is I she think, triggering this alarm? 
too. You know, what is this? Is this like one of those uh, like life alert things that they give to elderly people? What is this thing? It was some sort of a radio, like a two-way radio type of thing. I don't know. I'm yeah, like, you think it she... would have to be on her person at all times if she right. keeps getting attacked and she's able to alert this thing. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so you got attacked just getting out of your car in your garage immediately, and you had yep. time to, to alert him and get him there. Yep. It's just... always so convenient, right, that she's always found right as she's about to die. Yeah, exactly. And yet the perpetrator's gone. It's just always all too convenient. It is. It really is. Ugh, it's not looking good. If it happened one or twice, once or twice, you know, I'd, I'd give her the benefit of the doubt. But it just happened so many times, and it's always so perfect that she's found, you know, on the verge of death. And like I said, the perpetrator's long gone. And I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Highly sus. Yeah. Um. So on a May 1989, Cindy tells Ozzy Caban that she wants to install an infrared system in the backyard so that she can shoot any intruders. She also tells him that she is quote ready to talk, implying that she has been withholding information. But, of course, she would die soon after this, and this information would never be given. On May 26, 1989, she began a five-day vacation from her job at Richmond General, where she does various errands, including buying a birthday gift for a friend's son and getting a makeover. When her friends from the uh, Woodcocks arrived to play bridge with her at 10 p.m., her car was still gone. They find it in the parking lot of a local Safeway, and this is, begins her span of two weeks being missing before being found dead. Um, they know that she had gone to the ATM in the parking lot and of this Safeway grocery store where her car was found. And people that they, so they found the people that had used the ATM right before and after her and talked to them and asked if they had seen this woman. Mm-hmm. They said that they had seen her, that she was seen walking alone diagonally through the parking lot of the grocery store. And she'd apparently parked there, gone to the ATM, and then walked away from her car and, and was and never went back to her car and before being missing for two weeks and ultimately being found perished later Mm. Um, while she was missing uh, cindy's parents went through her home and found over 900 pills of various prescriptions as well as needles uh different intravenous uh paraphernalia wow for injecting yourself that doesn't look Um, good no and the pills like she didn't have prescriptions for all of these pills there were so many different medications and it's not clear how she obtained them um on june 8th 1989 two weeks after her disappearance was when the road worker found cindy's body near the abandoned house Obviously, as we mentioned earlier, she had been, um, her feet and hands had been tied behind her back. There was the needle mark in her arm, and the autopsy revealed that she had died of an overdose. Mm-hmm. Eight different drugs were in her system at the time of her death, and her, her death would ultimately be determined by a jury to be an unknown event. The co-creator of Unsolved Mysteries, Dan Muir, has quotes about this. He says, that she was tormented for seven years and ended up dead, this has always been a real puzzler. It's really hard to believe that she could have taken the drugs, then got, then ho- also hogtied herself. I think we can rule out accident. As for the multiple personality claim, she says it's a theory. Um, yeah, it is. I know Ozzy Caban, the private investigator for uh, worked who worked for her for years, still believed that she was being stalked and that she was murdered. So the private investigator was fully yeah. on board, thinking that someone was tormenting her. Well, I mean, he, I don't know. He did find the cigarette, right? That wasn't hers. But, I mean, she could have yeah. easily gotten a different brand of cigarette or borrowed a cigarette from somebody and left it there. Mm-hmm. You know, was the cigarette tested? I mean, probably not. You'd like a... to think that that would be held onto and tested in, right. you know, in a few years when DNA was a little bit more advanced. But they could have at least matched DNA. You know what I mean? They could have taken her, take her DNA and just see if it matched. See yeah. if it was in her mouth. See if she smoked it, at least. Right. I mean, that... That would be that would be some real evidence right there. 
Or right. if it's somebody else, who the hell is it? It wasn't nobody that matched. I would test everyone that was in her life. You know yeah. what I'm saying? At the time, who else do you know that smokes? Let's test them. Mm-hmm. There's just so many things I feel like they could have done a little bit, a little more thorough. But by that point, I just feel like they they weren't. They suspecting. were tired of being called out to her house every other day for right. These they weren't incidents. suspecting a culprit or someone on the outside at this point. Yeah, her family obviously didn't think that she was having any psychological issues. It's hard to imagine somebody inflicting that kind of pain when there's actually a knife going through their hand, like we talked about earlier. The big question is, who would keep this up for seven years? Um, And uh, as the um, co-creator of Unsolved Mysteries said, I don't think we're ever going to solve that one of who would keep this up for seven years. Was it Cindy really sick, perpetrating these against herself, consciously or unconsciously? Everyone that... Uh, responded to these um, incidents said that she was legitimately petrified. Like it it was either she was an unbelievable actor or actress or Mm -hmm. she uh, was, was legitimately scared. So it's possible, you know, there's a lot of, that the brain is very complex. It's possible. She could have done this to done these things to herself while simultaneously believing that someone else was doing it to her. What if, especially when you're on all of these different drugs, right? What if she's doing this to herself to blackmail Roy into giving her prescriptions that she's addicted to. Oh man! Did you think about that? And it would make I never the, thought the messages... about the addictive aspect of it from that angle, where it's like people do a lot of crazy stuff to get their hands on drugs. You know, right? What if she and... was addicted to these and she was like, "This is how I'm going to get them from you. If you don't give them to me, I'm going to." Or frame maybe not you. even Roy. If it, you know, is somebody some connection she had made through the medical field, being in it for so long? Yeah. Playing, playing the victim and, and using these as a reason to get more prescription drugs. Yes. It just occurred to me. But it's, it's a decent theory. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a possibility. No doubt. Um, an, an excerpt from Cindy's journal while she had been in St. Paul Psychiatric Unit three years prior to her death says, quote, I still feel that suicide is my best option in an unbearable situation. And as soon as I get out of here, I will carry out my plan. Oh. That's crazy damning. to think they let her out so quickly when that was in her journal. Yeah, did they not read it? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you're not giving a psychiatric patients private journals, are you? And then not reading them. I mean, it's kind of the point. That's that's um, that's some damning information. I didn't know about this about this little uh, this little ep- excerpt from this journal. Yeah. Hmm. What are you thinking? God, dude, I don't. I don't know. It's it's just it's hard to it's hard to think that someone would keep this up for seven years. I feel like Maybe she's she the common denominator. Like it's just you would have you would have seen you would have caught the perpetrator in the act. One of the you had so many chances. She's you know schizophrenic, I mean? like, right? It, I don't I don't know exactly what disorder I would label it as. I'm no ex- expert in the mental health field, but right. But I mean, I just by she, definition, I think losing touch with reality, can, thinking that yeah. you're some other person, thinking that these other people are involved, or making you do these to yourself, I feel like it's some form of paranoid schizophrenia, yeah. uh, something along those lines. And whether she was driven to that by suppressed childhood drama, or mm-hmm. or from these medications that maybe she got addicted to, you know what I'm saying? Like I I'm can sure. say, regardless whether she did, she was doing these acts to herself or not. I, I feel sorry. I feel bad for for Cindy James. I, she was Absolutely. a victim of either herself or of someone perpetrating these acts against her. Um, 
yeah, it's a, I think it's a tragic event regardless. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, it, she's there's at, no she's life still to, the victim. to live. Whether yeah, she did it to herself. Yeah, this is no life herself. to live. Whether you, she was yeah. doing it herself or she was being tormented by someone else, this is definitely no, no fun for anybody. No doubt. No doubt. She didn't gain anything from this. Yeah. And maybe she thought she would at the beginning. I, I don't know. I, I don't even think that. I don't even get that vibe from her. I don't even get the vibe that, like, my theory earlier, I'm just, I'm just shooting off the wall, like, from the hip, because I don't know. But it's obvious that she was a victim. And like you said, like they, the witnesses said, I mean, she seemed like she was acting pretty damn good. She was definitely authentically afraid. Yeah. You know? But of who? Yeah. Interesting. Well, I know I'm authentically afraid of uh, body odor. And yes. One way bro. to solve that is oh my Gaia. It is. It is. And guys, you should all be afraid of body odor during the summer, especially the scorching summer that we're having this year. Yes. Um, but don't worry, there guys. There is definitely global warming going on in my pits. Yes, no doubt. There's global warming going on in everyone's pits right now. You know, over yes. 100 degrees in the Pacific Northwest. I hope you guys are okay out there. Uh, stay cool. Get you a swamp cooler, whatever the hell you got to do. But in the meantime, get you some Oh My Gaia. Oh My Gaia is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. And at Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben, and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And there's tons of scents to choose from, guys, that is way better than your natural body odor scent. You know, no offense, uh, but you could get vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, as one of my personal favorites, I'm wearing that today, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, uh, bergamot, amber. We have our very own scent called True Crime Pine, barbershop, pear. Uh, there's new scents being added all the time, guys. But again, like I said, if you guys don't know where to start, Check out True Crime Pine. It was made just for your guys, true crime guys. And because you guys are true crime guys listeners, you can use the word creeper for 15% off your order. That's C-R-E-E-P-E-R for 15% off your order. At shop underscore oh my Gaia on Instagram or ohmygaia.com. Guys, don't hesitate. There's also beard oils, uh, scented oils, and uh, also incense that are amazing. You guys cannot beat the prices and the quality of this all-natural deodorant and scent company. You won't regret it, guys. Put some Oma Gaia in your pits. Yeah. All right. I want to take a minute to thank uh, everybody who's gone and rated and reviewed the show. Give a couple special shout-outs. We've owed a shout-out to Roland for a while. I keep forgetting to do it. So if you're still listening, listening Roland, big shout-out to Roland. Apparently, we stole a joke from Roland a while back, and we didn't even realize it. But oh, we just no. like parroted something that we'd had a conversation with him on Instagram about. He said, great show this week. Kind of disappointed at the end of the shout outs. You guys, uh, this episode, you guys talked about how many could have been serial killers that Aileen Warnos picked up. You know, how like how many of those guys that she picked up could have actually ended up being serial killers that may have yeah. killed her. Um, anyways, apparently we had talked about that with, with him. And so we may have oh. un- unconsciously stole that, that, uh, that talking point or whatever, that discussion. But either way, Roland... Definitely uh, better late than never on the shout out, but uh, yeah, <laughs> no big doubt. thanks to all the support, Roland. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Then we got people who've gone and read and reviewed the show on iTunes. I want to say thank you to Lori Ray. Uh, says the music intro songs are amazing. I may have done on the shout out last time actually, but you get a, you get a double. Is it so enjoyable? Insight into the cases uh, uh, outside of the usual box. Well worth Patreon pricing. Love TCG. Thank you, Lori Ray in the U.S. Then we mm-hmm. got Shell Z Y J. 
in the U.S. says, one of the best true crime podcasts. I love listening to you guys. Five stars. Thank you. Thank you. And we got Ray says, what was that? Oh, I was just saying thank you. Oh, okay. Then we got Ray says in the U.S. says, love you guys. Recently took a four-hour flight and you guys kept me entertained. Thanks. <laughs> thank you, Ray says. And uh, then we got Gay J... GJ Sir B F N S K in yep. the US said they crack me up. I recently came across these guys and I'm so glad I did. They have some good stories that I don't hear from other podcasts. I'd love to see them become as big as True Crime Garage, even if you thought they was TCG. Ha ha. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right on, right uh, on, guys. And we got one more. We got Silence972 in the US says, Great show. Just discovered this podcast. Have now subscribed and plan to binge the series. These guys have a great dynamic. Thank you, Silence972. And don't keep the silence, buddy. Right on. What else we got? Patreon. Check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash true crime guys. Two bucks a month gets you access to our once a month premium Patreon exclusive episode, which is only heard by patron members. Two bucks a yep. month gets you in on that party. If you want to bump up and get another show where me and Michael just hang out and shoot the shit called Just the Banter, we answer questions from listeners and we just hang out and you get to learn a little bit more about us and yes. we're a little bit more goofy on there. That's five bucks a month gets you access to that. And that's every week we put out that show on Friday. That's right. And every we put Friday. it out right after we record it too. It's very fresh. Yeah. It's usually about Friday evening sometime, uh, I guess if you're yeah. East Coast time, usually Friday around seven, eight o'clock. PM East Coast. So us having uh, recorded it just like three hours prior. Exactly. So you guys get a nice fresh take and you get your we usually put up a post on Patreon on Thursday asking for any type of questions, comments, uh, would you rathers, whatever you guys want to hear us talk about. And then we immediately answer all those questions, every single one on the just the banter the very next day. So it's it's kind of a cool turnaround. It's a great way to interact with us as hosts, and it's a great way for us to get to know you guys a little bit better. So Just the Banter is one of my favorite things we do on this show, man. Yeah, and on that $5 tier, you also get the very prestigious gold Creep Van sticker, which I need Uh to send out. I'm a little bit behind. If you haven't gotten yours yet and you became a $5 patron within the last month or so, hang in there. It will be coming, I promise. Very prestigious. It's worth it, guys. It's worth it. It will immediately up the value of whatever you put it on. So just hang in there. Yep. Check out our other show, Strange and Unexplained. That's right. This is the type of case that we would typically cover on Strange and Unexplained. Michael, I'm sure you're a little bummed that... No, it's good. Uh, it's good. I no, I this is this, this is has, this has strange and explained written all over it though, doesn't it? It this does, case. but I'm glad that I got to discuss it with you though. See, That's true. Th- this There's is one a of those lot more banter back and forth with this yes, than this, being on strange and explained. This is one of those cases that where I would have covered it on strange and unexplained and then I would have heard your synopsis and I would have been like, "Ah, I wish Lorne was here because I want to talk to him about why he thought that or this or that." And I actually yeah. got to do that in this case. So that was that was much cooler. But uh, yeah, Strange and Unexplained, wherever you guys listen, we, t- we cover mostly unsolved, uh, strange circumstances, missing persons, uh, cults, uh, even some supernatural stuff. So Strange and Unexplained, wherever you listen, guys, you'll see the, uh, the dinosaur, the old dinosaur skeleton T-Rex head on the logo. It looks a lot like True Crime Guys logo. If you search True Crime Guys in your podcast player, you should be able to find it. And then there's also a Patreon for Strange and Unexplained as well, patreon.com slash podcast for even more True Crime Guys content. There's another show I do every Monday called Strange Shorts, um, as well as the once-a-month exclusive, Patreon-exclusive that's on the $5 tier called Sandu Stories, where it is a, is a podcast where it's more like an old-school radio show. Uh, it flows like a story. You're being told a story with voice actors and sound effects, uh, this week, I think I'm going to have the most voices that I've ever had. I think there's four or five different voices. One of them you may recognize from another podcast that we actually played a promo for at the beginning of this episode. Excuse me, that's oh, illegal. Oh, baby. That's right. Mr. Leroy Luna. 
you're going to hear on the next Sandu Stories. That's right. Are you telling me we got somebody famous on that show? Yes, we do. <laughs> well, we always have you. I mean, come on. What are you talking about? But yeah, we're going to have Leroy Luna um, as well, co-act, uh, you know, co-starring alongside Lorne uh, and some other voice actors, and of course, myself as your narrator for this week's uh, Sandu Stories. So I'm super excited. Are about you that. not entertained? Right? Come on, guys. It comes out tomorrow. Tomorrow. So when you're hearing this. Beautiful. Mm. All right. Is that enough? That's enough. All right. I mean, uh, check us out on uh, all social media, at True Crime Guys everywhere, right. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that bull crap. That's right. Um, and we have merch. There's links below. There's links to our sources for this episode below. There's links to all of the crap that you either want to you know, support or buy if you want to. That's right. Um, Guys, check yeah, out the, the first, I think the first link right after the description, I always put the link to our link tree. Click on that link tree, guys, and you'll see everything laid out perfect. Everything in True Crime Guys Productions that you could ever uh, want to check out. We're on YouTube. Go give us a go subscribe to us on YouTube. Help us My out. OnlyFans is on there. That's right. It's a, see, it's a little bit every, of everything. <laughs> a little bit of, oh, hey, go check out our Spotify album, True Crime Guys Killer Mixtape. It's out wherever you listen to music uh, YouTube music, Spotify, iTunes, uh, Apple Music, whatever, all the fuck, all the places. TikTok. Uh, go check out True Crime Guys Killer Mixtape. So there's this 11 song album out for, that is made from our intros of various episodes. So if you're a fan of the intros, go check those out, guys. Do it. And uh, that's it. I think that's it. I think we're good. All right. All right. See y'all next week. Keep creeping. Keep creeping, guys. True Crime Guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was True Crime Garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the Creeper Army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. True crime guys, in the desert we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us cause you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the Creeper Army. We out here making murder charming.